the Global Initiative for Asthma Revises Asthma Treatment Strategies, the results of the Vitamins Trial are in, and the up-to-date scoop of the most recent coronavirus. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is January 25th, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Sagoda for the Spiro Podcast. Global Initiative for Asthma has revised their recommendations for intermittent and mild persistent asthma. Previously, the thought was to give escalating doses of inhaled steroids with an as-needed albuterol. Now, the new recommendation is for a combination of budesonide and fomoterol on an as-needed basis. This is only for intermittent and mild persistent asthma. This is a reversal from previous recommendations that specifically said to avoid long-acting beta agonists on a PRN basis, but with Fomoterol's uh, rapid onset of, say, five minutes or less, the Global Initiative for Asthma has revised the recommendations. They do not recommend Salmeterol or any other long-acting beta agonist to be used. And to be honest, the avoidance of long-acting beta agonists on a PRN basis has been so ingrained in my brain that I've had a hard time doing this. I have reluctantly tried this combination in a select few high-functioning intermittent and mild persistent asthma patients that have had mixed results so far. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next six months to maybe longer, who knows. But the idea of using a combination of a steroid and a long-acting beta agonist is actually meaningful and does make sense in this specific patient population of intermittent and mild persistent asthma. I like the idea of doing this. It gives you more likelihood that they're actually going to take their medicine as prescribed I'm just hopeful that we don't see any poor outcomes, but so far, so good. There was a trial called the Vitamins Trial. This was a trial that took place um, taking cumulative evidence from about 13 different studies performed in 10 different countries, looking again at high-dose vitamin C with or without thiamine and steroid dose to see if it causes any benefit for patients with sepsis or septic shock something we've been looking at for a long time now. Well, in this trial, when compared to hydrocortisone alone, treatment with a combination of IV vitamin C, thiamine, and hydrocortisone did not prolong time alive or change the need for vasopressors, according to the data coming out of this vitamins trial. It was a multi-centered, open-labeled, parallel group randomized trial that was conducted at about 10 ICUs in Australia, New Zealand, and Brazil. Researchers did randomly assigned adults uh, with septic shock, as defined by the criteria from the sepsis-3 consensus, to IV vitamin C, about a uh, gram and a half every six hours of vitamin C with hydrocortisone 50 milligrams every six hours and thiamine 200 milligrams about every 12 hours, or to just receive hydrocortisone 50 milligrams alone every six hours. Now, they continued this until shock either resolved or up to a total of 10 days. In a previous episode, we discussed the idea of the different phenotypes of sepsis. Again, this is another sepsis trial that did not look at these different phenotypes of sepsis. We have seen over and over again different drugs with very substantial promise come out, and then when you do a sepsis trial, we don't see benefit. Now, when we take a closer look and separate these trials out by looking at the patients in the different phenotypes that we've discussed previously, if you want to remember that, go back to episode three, refresh your memory about the four different types of sepsis phenotypes. When you look at these trials in the context of a specific phenotype, sometimes you do see a significant benefit. Maybe 
a post hoc analysis of the current trial based on these phenotypes may reveal some trends. You see, the reason we keep studying vitamin C and sepsis with currently 37 known ongoing vitamin C sepsis trials, it's because we have all seen it benefit in some patients. And in some of those patients, we've seen it benefit pretty dramatically. I believe that to better understand which sepsis patients would benefit, we need to tailor these vitamin C studies to one of the four specific phenotypes as a refresher. The four phenotypes are alpha, beta, gamma, and delta with escalating levels of worsening sepsis. Go back and listen to episode three of the Spiral Podcast to refresh your memory on these phenotypes. With the vitamin C being so inexpensive, I think that a large integrated healthcare system, or better yet, say a coalition of three or four of these large systems, could relatively easily give all sepsis patients the cocktail with a post hoc analysis based on phenotypes to tease out which, if any, phenotype of sepsis would actually benefit from the cocktail. Within a year, we could have access to tens of thousands of sepsis cases to delineate their respective sepsis phenotypes, and if there is any benefit to using the cocktail, it would be seen. I'm not advocating that we continue to use the vitamin C at high doses with all of the negative trials that are out there. We have, to my knowledge, 13 different studies performed in 10 different countries that with or without thiamine or hydrocortisone, vitamin C showed no benefit. Now, there are other studies that are forthcoming, and there appears to be no immediate justification for any adoption of high-dose vitamin C alone or in combination as a component of the treatment of sepsis. But as I mentioned, I really don't think that we know which patients it's really going to help the most. You've seen it work in some of your patients. I've seen it work in some of my patients. Which ones are we going to be able to use it in that are going to help? We don't know. The good news is, is that the side effect profile or the adverse event profile is incredibly low for these patients. So giving it is probably not going to hurt anybody, but it could potentially help. If anyone wants to put together a consortium, give me a call, email me. Let's see what we can come up with. I really do think that vitamin C is worth pursuing, as do the other 37 uh, trials that are ongoing right now. I think what we're doing it wrong. Right now, I think we need to delineate by the specific sepsis phenotype. This is where sepsis needs to go. Sepsis is too protean of an illness to just let it lie and just call it all sepsis patients. We need to look at the specific phenotypes. Let me know what you think. Look forward to hearing from you. The new coronavirus respiratory illness is causing enough issue that it is inundating us in our media outlets at this point. It was uh, first heard as a respiratory illness coming out of China, out of a city of 11 million people. Chinese authorities have actually shut this city down, Wuhan, China. 11 million people as of late yesterday were no longer able to leave the city or even move about. See, the Chinese Communist Party and its government had announced that authorities would shut down at least five more major metropolitan areas, including tens of millions of people in order to try to prevent the further spread of the disease that is at this point identified as a new coronavirus. As of this recording, there are more than 1,900 people have been infected and about 52 deaths, with one death of a Chinese neurologist that was caring for a patient and 14 staff at the hospital have also come down with it. The people that have succumbed to the illness have all but one have been over 50 years old with other comorbidities. Young people just seem to get a sign and symptom methodology consistent with like a cold. Uh, similar event did occur twice in my professional lifetime. This is the echo of a 
warning that took place about 17 years ago. That was also uh, occurred in China. It was known as the SARS disaster. I think disaster was a little extreme, but it was a SARS epidemic of sorts. SARS, the, the name of the disaster that appeared about 17 years ago in 2003, as mentioned, occurred in China and spread very quickly. Then there was the MERS, M-E-R-S, coronavirus that spread through the Middle East in 2012, beginning in Saudi Arabia. Both of those infections were also a coronavirus, and both were believed to have leapt from animal into human, and then from human to human. Learning from what they learned from the SARS epidemic, the Chinese has set out to build, yes, actually build, a full-functioning 1,000-bed hospital in only six days with three additional days to just get the necessary medical equipment into the facility and to get it up and running. Pretty incredible. There's actually images you can go to online and see the amount of equipment and people that are all in the same small area that are working in concert to build a hospital, thousand bed hospital in six days. Uh, They're basing it off of the same thing they did back for the SARS epidemic, but they learned a lot from that and now they're executing on it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the coronavirus itself. So the symptoms are the same as any other respiratory illness, except a lot of times these coronavirus infections are accompanied by diarrhea. Uh, This is not the kind of diarrhea, say like a cholera diarrhea. This is just a little diarrhea. There have been reports in the United States of potential coronavirus seen in Seattle, Texas, New Jersey, New York, and now North Carolina. I'm sure that more will be announced before this podcast is even released later today. So these numbers that I'm giving you are not up to the minute specific, obviously, but we're definitely seeing an escalation. Now, we're talking about a coronavirus, and one of the interesting and troubling things about this kind is that it appears to emerge primarily from animals, transmitted from animal to animal, until some kind of mutation allows the transmission from animal to human. But the most frightening mutation takes place when the virus has to mutate again in order to spread from human to human. And we are told that this coronavirus has now reached that stage. It is now mutated so that it can be spread from human to human, which is the concern and the the rapid spread that we saw in Wuhan. And now it is specifically occurring from travelers from Wuhan to the states that we've seen. We've not seen any human to human transmission in the states as of this recording. So what are the reasons why so many of these viruses start out in a place like China? Well, it's because there is a very close proximity between human beings and animals and as well as animals and animals and other animals. So the coronavirus does exist naturally among many animal populations and is most easily found in the bat population. Whether people are eating bats, I'm not sure. I think this was a concern with the Ebola issues in Africa. But I think with the coronavirus, it may just be spread from bats to animals through bites and whatnot. I'm not sure. But let's keep in mind a historical perspective here. Let's go back and look at the Spanish flu of 1918. At the end of World War I, it killed more people than all that died from what we call the Great War in and of itself. It is estimated that 500 million people in the world were infected. 50 million died from the disease. Deaths from the Spanish flu in the United States in 1918 in that one year was about 675,000, and it spread incredibly rapidly across the country. What are the mechanisms of that spread was actually the movement of millions of persons in the war effort itself. But there were other very strange aspects of the Spanish flu and those that died in 1918. For one thing, usually a virus like this is going to hit the sick or the infirmed or the weak or the very young. However, the people that were dying the most were young men between the ages of 17 and 25. 
many of them, of course, had been mobilized in the war. So why would a virus like this particularly target the extremely healthy and young? Well, it's because their immune systems were so potent and so well-formed that their own immune system led to their own demise as they had the most robust, hyper-responsive, hyperbolic immune response that led to what we would now refer to as ARDS. And in this uh, sweeping ARDS, um, without the technologies that we have today, so many people quickly succumb. So the most important thing to remember with the coronavirus is that we treat it just like we would a flu. Maintain those same respiratory precautions if you admit somebody that are concerned about this. It is not any more dangerous than anything else right now. It does seem to affect the sickest of the sick, um, and we just continue to treat them as we would any other viral pneumonia illness. One thing I want to make important on this podcast is that every now and then I might share my own personal opinion about trials or how I could see these things playing out in our day-to-day practice. But in this circumstance, when it comes to the coronavirus, I want to share with you some specific facts about a Chinese national Canadian scientist that was actually escorted out of a certified level four lab in Winnipeg back in July of 2019. What's interesting is that this scientist was a coronavirus specialist. She had her husband and multiple students that were with her. They were all escorted out of the Winnipeg Level 4 lab, which, by the way, is a lab that only handles the most deadly pathogens. Uh, Furthermore, this scientist traveled back and forth to Wuhan, China, on multiple occasions over two years, spending at least two weeks each time at a Level 4 lab there in Wuhan, China. Now, again, I just want to focus on the facts. I'm not making any specific suggestions, but I find it interesting that ever since this coronavirus scare has popped up, now we do not have access to some questions. For example, like why was this scientist escorted out of a lab and had all privileges revoked from ever practicing back in that lab again? Uh, Why were all of her students asked to leave? What was happening when she was traveling back and forth to Wuhan, China, from which this coronavirus is now seen? Um, Did she have anything to do with the study of a respiratory-type coronavirus? Is this a level 4 pathogen? These are all some valid questions, but we don't have access to any of those answers because all the emails have been redacted, everything that has come from this lab and from her work has been completely shut down. This is all back in July of 2019. Now that people are wanting to go back and look at certain things from a lab that specializes in coronavirus, they don't have access to it. Do not expect to hear these things coming out of the mainstream media or especially out of the medical uh, media. You're going to find this on independent journalists, Twitter accounts, websites, and whatnot. I don't even know any specifics. These are things that I'm being advised about, um, that this is where this information is coming from in the first place. This all happened on July 5th. So you can go to a CBC, that's a Canadian news outlet, the CBC, and pull it up from July 5th, and you'll be able to find all this information specifically related to uh, this uh, Canadian scientist who's a Chinese national, her husband, and all of her students. Um, As the Public Health Agency of Canada did say that there was a, quote, possible policy breach, end quote. Um, And still, the Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police officers have not yet interviewed uh, key people in the lab because uh, senior management has allowed access to it and whatnot. That was reported back in July. I'm sure things have been looked at since then, but 
Um, it'd be interesting to hear if anything comes up. If you do hear something, maybe I haven't, because I'm really not going to follow this too closely. But nevertheless, if you hear something, feel free. Send it to me um, either through our Twitter account um, or uh, email it to us at thespiralpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about something I like and something I don't like. We're going to stay with the old conspiracy theory garbage stuff here for just a minute. Because I like the movie Richard Jewell. Back during the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, a security guard named Richard Jewell discovered a suspicious backpack under a bench in Centennial Park. This is where all the music was played and people would gather. With little time to spare, he alerted the police and helped them to evacuate the area until the incendiary device inside of a backpack exploded. He was hailed as a hero, saved lives. Jewell's own life was completely unraveled when the two very most powerful forces in the United States at that time, the FBI and the media, collaborated to name him the prime suspect in the bombing. The FBI leaked the story and the media created a hyperbolic narrative where he was tried and convicted in the court of public opinion, though he had never been charged with any wrongdoing. Richard Jewell was finally exonerated, and the Attorney General even came out and made a statement on Richard Jewell's behalf. Now, I knew that the media had their biases, but this movie reminded me that our, quote, woke culture is more biased than ever. The public believed the media and was never able to defend himself. Feel bad for Richard Jewell. Uh, he's actually passed away several years later from a congestive heart failure. Anyway... Today, on both sides of the political spectrum, the media is even much worse. We've seen the leaks from the FBI to the media that led to years of journalistic garbage. I'm reminded that there is nothing new under the sun and that this has been going on for a long, long time. The movie was great. Highly recommend it. Go watch it. You won't be disappointed. Now, something I don't like. So, in that context, I don't like the garbage printed as truth. So, after watching Richard Jewell, I decided to see if there was any complicit fake news in the medical literature. Before beginning my search, I thought, hmm, I'd find maybe 25, but assuredly less than 50 articles that have been retracted because of uh, fraud. I'm not talking about mathematical or software errors where the authors were not privy until a much later date. I'm specifically talking about actual fraud, where the authors and peer reviewers worked in cahoots to dupe the system. What else I found is that numerous articles that were debunked and proven fraudulent are still referenced as factual. Wow, was I naive. My faith in the scientific literature has been rocked. Last year alone, there were over 400 retractions. Of those, it is estimated that 1% are purely fraudulent, meaning that at least four of those retractions were articles that were completely made up. What else I found is that numerous articles that were debunked and proven fraudulent are still referenced as factual. 1% does not seem like much on the surface. But when I did a deeper dive into this type of fraudulence, I found several articles where scientists and physicians confessed to defrauding the scientific community with literally hundreds of fake studies. For example, Dr. John Darcy of Emory Harvard Lineage confessed to publishing over a hundred fake articles himself. 
In the early 1980s, he was considered one of the most prolific authors, all of which was total garbage. He later wrote a letter of apology to the New England Journal of Medicine and, of course, was fired. More recently, in 2017, a massive peer review fraud had triggered a tough response from the Chinese government. Officials announced that more than 400 researchers listed as authors and reviewers on some hundred now-retracted papers faced disciplinary action because of their misconduct and how it had seriously damaged China's scientific reputation. Some institutions have banned the scientists linked to the fraud from pursuing the research, at least temporarily, and they have imposed other penalties including canceling promotions, honors, and grants. Chinese government ministries have announced a new, quote, zero-tolerance policy aimed at stamping out research fraud. Personally, I would not want to be on the other end of a Chinese zero-tolerance policy. A retraction now does not mean that fraud occurred. Again, I'm specifically talking about those authors that are trying to keep their jobs by padding their CVs with publications in hopes of getting tenure. Each year, there are more and more fraudulent articles. This is telling us that the system is broken. With all that in mind, I doubt we'll ever have the truth about the origins and spread of the most recent coronavirus. And we'll have to really keep a close eye on the articles that we use to help manage our patients. A poem by Diana Hendry. Love has been loitering down these corridors, has been seen chatting up the outpatients, spinning the wheels of wheelchairs and fluttering the pulse of the night nurse, appearing disguised as a bunch of grapes and a smile, hiding in dreams, handing out wings in orthopedics. No heart is ever bypassed by love. Love has been loitering down the corridors of this hospital. It is highly infectious. Mind how you go, for if you smile, you might catch it. From Mars Hill Media, this is the Spyro Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, it would be great if you would give us a five-star rating as it helps us to move up the search results. Oh, tell your friends how to subscribe too. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Zagoda, and this week... I'll leave you with a song and memorandum of Neil Peart, the drummer of Rush, who sadly passed away a few weeks ago from a brain tumor. Until next time.